This morning, I'm going to do something I almost never do and begin with a story. My story, but really the story of how God worked to lead me to saving faith. On this day, 50 years ago, I was in a unique community in Switzerland. Here's how I got there. In the late 60s, I became a hippie and was drawn toward Eastern religions, Hinduism and Buddhism. I had a hunger for truth and thought that I could best satisfy that hunger for truth by traveling to what I regarded as the spiritual center of the world, India. From mid-September to the end of October 1970, I traveled overland from Europe to India. I spent the next uh, six months immersed in uh, Indian life and culture. I spent most of that time in an ashram, a spiritual retreat center, devoting myself to the practice of Zen Buddhism. God led me at that time also to two Christian families who profoundly influenced the direction of my life. One was an older missionary couple from the U.S. whom I'd known from my hometown growing up. They lived a life of remark remarkable dedication to Christ and rearranged their busy schedules to spend time with me and interact with my questions about the Christian faith. The other couple was a remarkable young Indian evangelist and his wife. They too lived a life of complete devotion to Christ and the gospel that was different from anything I had ever seen before. Like the missionary couple, they showed marvelous love toward me, a crazy hippie, uh, and patiently interacted with my many questions about the Christian faith. As my time in India drew to a close in April 1971, I made a life-changing decision. I had grown up in a, most, in a mainline Protestant church where the gospel message was not clearly proclaimed. Um, even though I had met some lovely Christians, I had never met Christians whose faith was as stunning as that of those I met in India. Their lives made me want to revisit the Christian faith. I can point to the turning point. Most followers of Eastern religions have a high regard for Jesus as a great teacher, a man like Buddha and others who had achieved spiritual enlightenment. That's also what I believed at the time. I was reading all kinds of books at the time, but I also had a Bible that I carried with me. One day, reading through the Gospel of John, the Gospel we're currently studying at Harvest, I came to John 14.6. I heard Jesus, this enlightened man, make this staggering claim. I am the way and the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, I knew enough of the world's major religions to know that none of the founders of those religions claimed to be the one and only pathway to God. The medical missionaries loaned me some books about a unique Christian community in the Swiss Alps where seekers like me could go 
and study and live in community with Christians. I made the decision to head to Switzerland. So I flew from Bombay to London, then traveled by train and postal bus up to a picture postcard community in the Swiss Alps. I arrived, if you can picture it, with a freshly shaved head, little Gandhi glasses, all dressed in, a, in an all-green suit that I had gotten in Nepal, and then a huge red backpack. They received me warmly into this unique community without even batting an eye. What did I hope to find in this community called Labri, the shelter? I longed to find out if the Christian faith was true. And when I say true, I don't mean it in the modern sense that it could be true for me, but not true for you. I mean true in the sense of true to reality, no matter what you or I think about it. I also needed to see if the Christian faith worked. Um, what it looked like as Christians interacted with one another in community and in their dealings with outsiders, as I myself was at the time. I'm now going to shift gears and take us back from 50 years ago, back almost 2,000 years, to the early days of the Christian church. Later, I'm going to tie the story of the early Christian church to the story of my search and the life of Harvest Church in 2021. Our focus in the Bible this morning is on Acts 2, 42 through 47. I'd invite you to follow along with me in your Bible or the Bible on your phone, tablet. Uh, by the way, Harvest loves to give away Bibles. Uh, if you need a Bible, if you don't have one, uh, you can grab one in the lobby this morning. Let me pray, and then we'll get into the Word this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you. You have blessed us abundantly with your Word. Uh, you have spoken to us in your Word, words which are true, uh, were true when they were written, and are still true today. Uh, our only source of communication from the one true God. Father, open our hearts and minds today as um, you teach us. Shape our lives through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So Acts 2, <clears throat> beginning with verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they, were, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number 
day by day those who were being saved. The spread of the Christian faith in the first century is one of the most remarkable facts of all human history. In one generation, the Christian faith spread through most of the known world of that day. It wasn't spread by force. It was spread as the minds of hearts of men and women were transformed by the simple message of a crucified and risen Savior. There was no internet, not even printed books. The Christian faith was spread mostly by humble, poor, common folk. The church is continuing to spread today in much the same way. As the message of Jesus Christ reaches more and more remote people groups, we see the same kind of radical transformation of hearts and minds. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is still being spread largely by those the world would consider nobodies. I was privileged to return to India twice to minister and share my testimony. Traveling to remote areas in far northeast India, I saw firsthand how the gospel has spread like wildfire among thousands of animists who were worshiping the sun and the moon just a generation ago. I met some of the first believers uh, in, in one of those tribal groups. What fueled this phenomenal spread of the Christian faith in the first century? What's fueling it today? Do you want to know? <laughs> Do you want to share in this same kind of kingdom impact? Shouldn't we try to understand the powerful dynamic behind this kind of growth so we can witness the same kind of growth gospel outreach right here in Mississippi? Don't you want to be a part of something this awesome? We need to remind ourselves what had just happened in the book of Acts. Before returning to heaven, Jesus Christ told his disciples, about 120 men and women, to wait in Jerusalem until they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would give them power to be Christ's witnesses in Jerusalem and out from there into the, 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 the uh, ends of the earth. Ten days later, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak with other languages. And as a result, people from every nation in the known world heard the mighty works of God proclaimed in their own language. Peter just a humble fisherman, preached his first sermon. His only training was the three years he spent with Jesus Christ. Peter proclaimed the good news to them. Acts 2, uh, 22 through 24. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. 
At the end of his message, Peter issued a clear call to faith. Uh, Down to verse 38 of Acts 2. Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, be saved from this perverse generation. God bless Peter's message. 3,000 people received the word and were baptized as they professed faith and became members of First Church in Jerusalem. So in one day, the church grew from 120 to over 3,000. So what was the dynamic? What was the power that kept drawing thousands of people, then ten thousands of people, to faith in Christ in those early years of the Christian church? Well, as we saw in our passage for today, there was nothing ordinary about First Church of Jerusalem. It was a church on fire. Yet except for the mention of signs and wonders, looked at from another angle, what they were doing as a church was really quite ordinary. They were simply devoted to the means of grace. What do I mean by the means of grace? These are the ordinary channels God has chosen to convey his grace to the souls of men and women. First and foremost is the apostles' teaching. In the the first century, this was often teaching right from the mouths of the apostles themselves. I mean, can you imagine how amazing it would have been to have Peter or James or John or one of the apostles teaching you? Telling you about stories about their three years with Jesus? The truth is that we do have that privilege. We do have that privilege. The teaching of the apostles is perfectly preserved for us in the New Testament. When we gather together and the word of God is opened, explained, applied, God uses his word to impart grace to our souls. Fifty years ago at Labrie, all of the lectures, seminars, chapel services, counseling, Everything was based on God's word. My first intensive study was in the book of Romans. I began to see that sin is a fatal disease that affects every human being. Though I wasn't a Christian yet, I began to see that the Christian faith alone has the the answer to human rebellion against God. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ provide the only way for rebels to be reconciled to a holy God. We receive forgiveness and eternal life as a gift through repentance and faith in Christ. It's because of the phenomenal power of this simple message that faithful Christian churches must reject any teaching that's light on the gospel. 
That's why we seek to preach all of God's Word. That's why we don't hold back from preaching truth that is hard or challenging. We preach the whole truth without apology. In doing so, we're swimming upstream against the current. Sadly, in many churches today, there's not even a, an attempt to carefully unpack God's Word. Instead, the preacher gives his own ideas and then fishes around for a passage of Scripture to support his thoughts. This is such a dangerous trap. Not every list of the means of grace would include fellowship. It should. It's a wonderful New Testament word, koinonia. It speaks of the reality that through faith, we're joined to the Lord and to one another in a common faith. We come together to hear the word, to share our lives, to build one another up in the faith, to celebrate the Lord's Supper, to pray. Later, I'll circle back to talk more about what true biblical fellowship should look like in a healthy, growing church in the 21st century. Today's scripture mentions breaking bread twice. And I'm convinced that both of those are references to the Lord's Supper. We know that the church met as a large group in the temple courts and in home churches that met on a daily basis. The New Testament makes clear that home churches were the normal ways that Christians met in the early years of the church. Just one example. 1 Corinthians 16, 19 says, the churches of Asia send greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. We celebrate the Lord's Supper weekly at harvest. We do so in part because a weekly or perhaps even daily breaking of bread took place in the early church. Well, isn't there a danger celebrating that often that it becomes routine? Sure, it's a danger. It will never become routine if we use it as a time to meditate on Christ's death for sinners. The Lord's Supper will only get routine for us if what Jesus did on the cross becomes routine for us. And if that ever happens, God help us. Again, not everyone's list of the means of grace would include prayers together as believers. It should. The New Testament calls prayer a means of grace. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. Throughout the book of Acts, we see the early church gathered for earnest prayer. Proud, self-reliant people don't pray. Desperate, needy people pray. The people in the early church knew themselves. They knew they were weak and vulnerable. They knew that they, were, that they lacked the power to be bold, fearless witnesses for Christ. So they prayed. It's hard to imagine those early Christians meeting together and not praying. Do we need prayer any less today? We saw that the early believers had all things in common. Now this wasn't some early form of communism. 
Communism is a cruel, godless system that takes from people whether they like it or not. The sharing of the early church was strictly voluntary, as you can see in Acts 5. It was spontaneous, motivated by a love for brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a need for caution whenever we think about uh, the sharing in the early church as it applies to the church today. There are two errors to be avoided. Some people claim that putting everything into a common pot and living together communally is the only way to be real followers of Jesus Christ. The error, the error on the other side is to say, well, that was just something they did in the first century. It has nothing to do with me today. As individualistic North American Christians, we clearly lean in that direction. The curse of Western Christianity is privatized religion. You know what I mean by that? Just me and Jesus. Just me and Jesus. Just having Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior is what's really important. The church is a helpful aid to my personal faith. As long as I think the church is helpful, I'll be part of the church. If the church stops being helpful for me, I'm out of there. You know, I'll worship God on my own or with my own little family. Many who claim to be born-again Christians have exactly that take-it-or-leave-it attitude toward the church. I love Jesus. I just can't stand organized religion. I love Jesus, but I don't feel a need to be part of a local church. You know why a Christian can't make that kind of distinction? Because the church is the body of Christ. You can't claim to love Jesus Christ and have nothing to do with his body. The church, the Bible calls the church Christ's bride. You can't claim to love Jesus and yet want nothing to do with his bride. Well, yes, the bride of Christ has warts and zits, <laughs> but she's still the object of Christ's love and care. And if we really love our brothers and sisters in Christ, we will not be able to turn away if we see them in need. Here's some powerful teaching from one of the apostles, John. This is from 1 John 1, verses 16 through 18. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. You can just feel the love for Christ's dear church in Luke's summary of what, what life was like in that early church. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. I mean, no one needed to lecture them on the importance of being with other believers. It was their joy and delight. 
at the end of a long day of work. They could not wait to sit around the table with other believers, praising the Lord. And you can be sure they weren't just sharing food. They were sharing their whole lives. When someone was weeping, was, was sorrowful, they wept with her. When someone was, re was rejoicing, they celebrated with him. Their lives were intertwined, interlocked. How about you? What is your attitude toward your, toward your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you long to be together with other believers? In the early church, there was a deliberate, passionate, unified engagement with one another. Isn't, isn't this a goal each of us needs to pursue if we want Harvest to have this kind of powerful impact for Christ? I mean, there's churches all over the world in which relationships never get beyond a polite surface level. How are you doing today? Oh, fine. Just fine. <laughs> you know, I'm actually really torn up inside, but I'm not going to tell you. Just fine. Uh, I want more than that, don't you? I, I, I got a taste of real fellowship at Labrie, and it was what started to draw me, helped to draw me to saving faith. Luke tells us that many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. Should signs and wonders be part of a church today that's on fire for Christ? I'm not going to go there this morning. We, we just don't have time to tackle it. I, do I believe that God is still able to perform miracles? Absolutely. Do I think we should expect it as part of the normal life of the church, even a church on fire? I do not. The main reason for the signs and wonders in the early church was to authenticate the message of the apostles. And once the apostles' teaching was written in the Bible, the need for veri that verifying role was no longer as necessary. The one exception that I see today is among people groups that are hearing the gospel for the very first time. God sometimes uses healing miracles to open people to hear the gospel. Where God's word is readily available to focus on signs and wonders, then can become a great distraction from the gospel. I believe that the greatest display of God's power can be seen in transformed lives and the witness of vibrant Christian community. Listen, Satan can counterfeit signs and wonders. Satan can't transform a heart that's selfish and hostile to God into a heart that delights to love God and serve others. Lives transformed from the inside out by the power of the Holy Spirit is the greatest evidence of God's power. As Christians gather together in community, that testimony to the power of God is magnified. The church pictured in Acts was as diverse as the Roman Empire. Rich and poor, slave and free, Jew and Gentile, all different ethnic groups, all living in harmony because of their common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit living in each one. Their love and unity 
was absolutely astounding. Luke says that the early church found favor with all the people. Unbelievers often give Christians a grudging kind of respect. They can't help but see the revolutionary changes that take place when someone comes to real saving faith in Christ. They can't help admire the, the deep Christian love that believers have for each other. The fourth, the fourth century Roman emperor Julian hated Christians. He tried to promote a revival of pagan religion in the Roman Empire. He was so frustrated that he couldn't get pagans to care about each other the way Christians did. In a letter that he wrote to the pagan high priest of Galatia, Emperor Julian complained, for it is disgraceful that no Jew is a beggar and the godless Galileans, that was his name for Christians, that the godless Galileans support our poor in addition to their own. <laughs> disgraceful. Wherever Christian missions have gone in the world, they've not just brought the gospel, but hospitals, schools, orphanages. We want Harvest to be a church that's known for our concern for the community, state, nation, the world. We must also work to build a quality of Christian community that is stunning. In our study of the Gospel of John, we'll eventually get to Jesus' prayer recorded in John 17. In that prayer, Jesus said that people have the right to judge the truth of the gospel based on the depth of love that Christians have for one another. He prayed these sobering words. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, that's the early disciples, but for those who will believe in me through, um, uh, who will believe in me through their word, that's us that they may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus was praying for us, that we have a loving unity as believers that's a reflection of the loving unity between God the Father and God the Son. Do you see how far that goes beyond polite, smiley faiths, Sunday Christianity? The love we have for each other and the compassion we have for the lost is critical to our preaching of the gospel. That should set us apart from all the false religions of the world. The powerful preaching of the gospel and the witness of the love of the Christian community let Jews and Gentiles, Jews and pagans by the thousands and then tens of thousands to saving faith. People were added to the, the church on a daily basis as they placed their faith in Jesus Christ and were baptized. Only Jesus Christ has the power to add men and women to his church. We can't save people. We can proclaim the good news, but it's the Lord who saves. Are you part of the church, the living body of which Jesus Christ is the head? The call, the, the call goes out here at Harvest and around the world. Save yourselves 
from this crooked generation. Don't miss out on the blessings of saving faith that is being enjoyed by so many from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Come to Jesus Christ today by faith. Through the months of June and July, 50 years ago, the truth of the Word of God and the genuine love I received from this wonderful Christian community worked on my mind and heart. And sometime in the month of August, I embraced Jesus Christ by faith and began my life as a Christian. My brothers and sisters, don't you long to see the great power that we're reading about in the book of Acts? Are you hungry to see the gospel spreading in Mississippi the way it is around the world? We can't force the Lord to give us blessing, but we can certainly plead with God and make sure we're doing all we can as individuals and as a church. When I read a text like the one we've read today, I realize how far short I fall uh, of the passionate engagement of the Christians in the early church. I was humbled when I met Christians in Northeast India. They had a love of God's Word, a depth of love for each other, and a zeal to spread the truth of Jesus Christ that puts most Christians in the West to shame. What will it take to transform us into the kind of believers we see in the book of Acts in Northeast India and around the world. Isn't it first of all about our hearts? It starts by seeing what you and I could be and then being profoundly discontent with where we are. If you're not as passionately devoted as the means of grace as you should be, not as zealously engaged with the body of Christ as you know you should be, ask God to forgive, with, forgive you and ask him to change your heart. Ask him to set your heart on fire. Ask him to give you a hunger to see the church spread and grow. Have I chosen this passage of scripture to preach because I think Harvest, uh, Harvest Church is doing a lousy job at Christian community? Not at all. Harvest is a place where people hear the truth clearly proclaimed on a weekly basis and where genuine love is on display. Our family has experienced the love of the Harvest family, especially as many of you has, have reached out to our daughter as she struggled with health issues. The members of Harvest are quick to respond when there's a call for practical help, uh, such as providing meals for a new mom. Uh, I know it was a lifeline, the online uh, midweek prayer uh, and the, the home group that we were part of during COVID. Uh, it just, it was the highlight of the week that we looked forward to. Many of you have been on both the giving and receiving end of love at Harvest. Harvest is trying to reach across ethnic lines. Our desire to partner with the Chinese church is just one example. Harvest is pa partnering with church plants in Pakistan and Ghana and help send, believe, uh, help send study Bibles to believers in Cameroon. 
Does that mean that you and I have arrived, that we've arrived as a church? Can we as individuals or harvest as a church check off the, the box that we're totally following Christ's command to love each other, loving others as we love ourselves? We all know how much we need to grow in real love. Would you be willing to meet a need that went on for years rather than weeks? The church we planted in Vermont about the size of Harvest has been showing extraordinary love over the long haul. That church has been ministering to one family for over eight years. The family has a little girl with Down syndrome. She's had nearly 40 surgeries in her young life. Through that entire time, the church family has been consistently loving on this family, giving and giving and giving and giving of themselves to express Christ's love in practical ways. You want to know one result? Over 5,000 people followed the parents' Facebook page, many of them unbelievers. They have been able to witness the steady face, faith of the parents in the face of great adversity and have heard of the love of the church of Jesus Christ over the long haul. What an astounding witness that is. How tied up is your money and time with things that will count for little in the end? Your house, your car, your hobbies, your sports, your kids' activities. Look honestly. What's keeping you from a radical commitment to the body of Christ and the spread of the gospel? Once your heart is right, take a good look at your priorities. I'm guessing that many of you prioritize giving. You decide what you'll give to Harvest and other Christian missions, and then give it before you spend that money on anything else. How about doing the same with your time? Prioritize Sunday worship, small group meetings, block off nights of the week when you plan to invite unbelievers over, other times when you plan to deepen relationships with your brothers and sisters in Christ. I know I need a strategy for developing relationships or it will never happen. I'm saying, what I'm saying is that if we are, are convinced that what we're reading about today is, is at the heart of God's will for us. We need to be deliberate and proactive to make sure it happens. Do you long for Harvest to develop more and more into this kind of church? A church on fire. A church to which unbelievers are being added day by day. Then you, you and I must do whatever it takes to be devoted to the means of grace and committed to one another. Don't think that developing this kind of community will come without a cost. We must be willing to sacrifice time, money, personal comforts to build this kind of community. Labrie, the community I was at 50 years ago, consisted of a number of chalets. The permanent workers who lived in these chalets had a constantly changing group of about uh, two dozen students living at, in their home. 
For most meals, they would host a different group of about two dozen students around their tables. They had little personal time, time that they weren't up to their eyeballs in ministry. And yet, that sacrifice was balanced with the joy of seeing hundreds and hundreds of people come to saving faith and fellow Christians energized to be radical disciples of Jesus Christ. You would be amazed at how many Christian leaders today were shaped by that one ministry of that one Christian community. The church in the first century was a church on fire. Apart from the signs and wonders, what they were doing was so simple. Listen again to Acts 2.42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Do you see? They were continually devoting themselves to these things. Their priorities were clear. At the center of their lives was pursuing God in the company of other believers with a goal of reaching the lost with the gospel. Everything else was in second place. Where are my priorities? Where are your priorities? That's not a question we can ask just once and then move on. We need to be continually examining our priorities and letting God re-jig us when they get out of line. Are you willing to examine your priorities in the light of God's Word and to move the focus of your life back to God's priorities? As Margaret and I have come to know many of you at Harvest, we have sensed that God is shaping your priorities to be more and more in line with his vision for the church. May he do so more and more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, the clarity of your word. And sometimes, Father, that uh, word uh, issues uh, challenges to us that make us uncomfortable. But Father, we thank you that uh, as we commit ourselves to following your priorities for us, uh, for Harvest as a church, you will give us the grace and the strength and the means uh, to carry out your kingdom purposes. Father, help each of us to take a good look at our lives in the light of God's word and to allow you to rejig us uh, whenever we're out of line with your purposes for this world. We thank you, Father, for the, the, the sufficiency of the grace of Jesus Christ. Father, that um, his grace is made perfect in our weakness. Father, we thank you and praise you in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen.